You are listening to Inclusion Evolution, a bi-weekly podcast that brings you insightful and engaging conversations on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the legal profession, the technology space, the world of sports, and our everyday. Here are your hosts, Lisa Mueller and Michael Kasdan. Welcome back to Inclusion Evolution. I'm Lisa Mueller. And I'm Michael Kasdan. Hey, Mike, here we are back with yet another episode. And today we're going to talk about a really interesting and timely topic, and that's affirmative action, and particularly the consolidation of two cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, which uh, seem like they may end affirmative action, and that's the Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard University and UNC. Yeah, so uh, this is a topic that I'm glad we're going to tackle. I know we're both lawyers. We're not quite... (laughs) We're, you know, we're both we're both IP lawyers, um, but you know, I saw some news reports about this, and you know, given the composition of the court, and given that these sort of test cases have made their way up to the court, um, I thought, you know, given the fact that we're talking about you know diversity, equity, inclusion, and how important affirmative action is, um, I, I thought it made sense to get into the the nitty gritty a little bit, um, and so I'm excited about the conversation today. You know, I know that sometimes. When we get into the details, you know, even for me, and I'm a lawyer um, of some of these cases, you know, particularly in education, right? Like here is a very complex, you know, algorithm for for how we select students and whether that passes muster or not. Um, but it just reminds me of this this John Oliver uh, clip that I saw once, where he said, you know, if you want to do something evil, you bury it in something boring. Exactly. And so, you know, there's so much that's I think in today's world, like loaded into these issues. And of course, you know, there's a cultural issue and, you know, the legal issue is only part of it. Um, But, you know, there's a lot going on right now in terms of, you know, pushback um, against, you know, diversity initiatives and affirmative actions were really big historic one. So I'm glad we're going to get into it. Yeah, exactly. I was really glad when you suggested it as a topic. And I, you know, like you said, there's a lot of details in it, which we're going to go into. And so everybody should just be patient with us. But, you know, you really need to understand those details to kind of make sense of the, the case and where the court's going. But I think it's a really, really important topic right now, given the current environment. So, you know, as we always like to do, Mike, when we talk about these topics, you know, let start with kind of defining and setting the baseline of what affirmative action is. So Mike, can you give us a definition of affirmative action? Yeah, I can give you, um, you know, sort of my take on it, or at least one definition of it. I think most people are familiar with the term, but I think for purposes of, of today's conversation, uh, affirmative action is a set of procedures uh, designed to eliminate or address uh, unlawful discrimination among applicants, uh, designed to remedy the results of, of past discrimination um, and prevent discrimination in the future. And so, you know, the applicant may be seeking admission to an educational program like a university uh, in the cases we have that we'll be talking about today or or for a job, right, looking for a job. And um, in, you know, in, you know, modern, you know, jurisprudence in, in, in the U.S., um, typically, affirmative action programs will impose remedies against discrimination on the basis of, at the very least, uh, race, creed, color, and national origins. Um, and so the concept of affirmative action has actually existed in America since the 19th century, uh, which I think was interesting to me. Um, but the historical and kind of legal origins 
uh, were also kind of interesting. I didn't realize that um, the term first appeared um, in the 1960s in President Kennedy's uh, one of his executive orders, Order uh, 10925, for those of you scoring at home. Um, but <laughs> and, and, and in, in that executive order, um, it said, quote, the contractor will take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are, are, are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. So this, this framing of taking affirmative action um, to, to make those, those positions uh, for applicants available um, it, it, you know, has its roots, at least the word, um, in that executive order. Um, so President Kennedy, not just uh, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, but also affirmative action. Yeah, I was really surprised about that. And it was really interesting to me. Um, and so I think that was a great way to start off, Mike. And I want to dive into a little bit of some of the background, some of the history of some of the important Supreme Court cases relating to affirmative action, because they really set the stage for the two consolidated cases we're going to talk about today. So everybody kind of just bear with as we we give a little historical background here. So so one of the very first cases, and I think the name is going to sound very familiar to people, is Brown versus the Board of Education from 1954. And there, the Supreme Court held that public schools cannot exclude minority students from white schools by sending those minority students to a school that separately services those minority students. So this decision really acted as a precursor to many of the education-based affirmative action cases the Supreme Court took up in subsequent years. On Brown, it's interesting. You know, you said it may sound familiar to people, and it certainly sounds familiar to me. I have very clear memory of writing a term paper yes. on Brown, the Board of Education, in high school, right? Because yes. the prior regime was Plessy v. Ferguson, separate but equal. Exactly. And Brown, right? There was this big shift that, and that was also happening, of course, in society. Um, but but that was that was for me like a really formative case. Um, really interesting. Kind of got me really interested in the law, actually, you know, even when I was doing that in high school. Yeah, it's one of those some old cases that you do hear about even in high school and, and then definitely in college. So that was the very first case. And then the next one was the Regents of the University of California versus Bake. And that was a 1978 decision that involved the University of California Davis's medical school and their admission policy that specifically reserved 16 spots for entering classes of 100 students, and those 16 spots were reserved for minority students. Now, the Supreme Court didn't have a majority opinion in that case, but the main takeaway from that decision from Bake was that the Constitution prohibits a school from having racial quotas. Fun fact, Mike, um, UC's case was argued by Archibald Cox, who was that famous Watergate special prosecutor who actually demanded Richard Nixon turn over his recordings from the White House. And he was ultimately fired along with a bunch of other attorneys in what was this Saturday night massacre. And that ultimately led to, to Nixon's downfall. Yeah, that's a great little historical nugget. I love it. Um, it's so interesting. I also you know, just to sort of frame this issue when I think about it, and I know we're going to get really into these cases, but, you know, just to, stay, to take a step back, I think this is one of these issues where you're thinking about, like, how do I remedy this situation where historically 
underrepresented parties have been discriminated against and it creates a system where it's really hard to make progress you know unless you can address it exactly so so this is you know one example where they said okay well we'll have a quota and we'll have a certain number of people who are of that minority and you know those spots have to be filled with that minority and and the supreme court said no you can't do that and so i think then these future cases are kind of saying, well, what can we do? And like, what are the meets and bounds of that? Exactly. Trying to chisel out some, you know, definition or some guidance from the court about what will pass muster. And, you know, that led to a series of two cases in 2003, interestingly enough, involving the University of Michigan. One case involved the undergraduate admissions office at U of M, the other, the law school admissions office at U of M. So the first case, Gratz versus Bullinger, which involved the undergrad admissions office, they actually used a point-based system in its admission process. So up to 20 points could be used if an applicant was an underrepresented minority. And the Supreme Court basically struck this down and they said that race-based methods must use strict scrutiny and that generalization of underrepresented minorities failed the narrow tailoring requiring of the strict scrutiny imposed. So, you know, that was very interesting in that aspect, you know, trying to assign a point system was something that just didn't pass the strict scrutiny test. Right. So the second case involving the law school in 2003, Gutter versus Bollinger, um, here the law school used a different approach than the undergraduate school. It didn't use points, but um, instead they used race as a num- one of a number of factors. Um, but race alone couldn't be used to automatically result in acceptance or rejection of law school. So the Supreme Court actually upheld this plan, saying it was narrowly tailored enough to satisfy strict scrutiny. And their exact words were, the program is flexible enough to ensure that each applicant is evaluated as an individual and not in a way that makes race or ethnicity the defining feature of the application. So they felt that the law school had engaged in a highly individualized and even somewhat holistic review of each applicant's application, and they gave very serious consideration to all the ways an applicant could contribute to a diverse educational environment. So it just seems like sort of tracking where we are so far, the court said, you know, no quotas and systems where it says, you know, if you are a minority, you are in. Um, you know, that's kind of the courts sort of felt that was too too much like a quota. But in this case, and I think it's interesting, it's, it's kind of funny that the the law school got it right <laughs> and, <laughs> and the passed legal muster. Yeah. Right? And, and the undergraduate. You would have you know, thought they would have been communicating. <laughs> but uh, yeah, maybe they should have gotten some legal advice from the law school. But <laughs> but the law school method seemed to do it right because the court said, well, you know, you can take race into account like in the overall um, as part of, you know, who that applicant is as an individual. And it can be um, one of the criteria. So that seems like at least, you know, through through these cases in the early 2000s, you know, where the state of the law was at the Supreme Court. Absolutely. Just one final note about that case, the Grudiger versus Bollinger case was there was some dicta in that case in the majority opinion where Justice O'Connor wrote, this court expects that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today. And I just mentioned that quote because it's going to come up and it did come up during the oral arguments in in the case that's in front of the Supreme Court right now. Yeah, and I think that's interesting. So that was 2003. So 25 years, 2028. So that's five years from now. 
Um, and I just think it's interesting. Uh, you know, the comment, I think, at its heart makes sense, right? The reason that we have affirmative action is because of this history of discrimination. It's supposed to be remedial. remedial, And then you would hope that, you know, we would remedy it in exactly. society <laughs> at a certain point and you wouldn't need it anymore. Um, but it just kind of reminds me, you know, that's a really aspirational piece of dicta there. Um, Very. Because I don't, you know, I don't think we've made as much, as much progress as Justice O'Connor hoped or as much as sort of I thought. And it just kind of reminds me of myself, you know, I, I studied engineering in college. I was pretty heads down. I wasn't really very political. And, you know, I remember writing for the Goodman Project at the time that that Ferguson happened. Um, right. And we've had a whole bunch of oh incidents. My gosh, yeah. and, but but for me, that was, you know, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say um, that I think I was sort of so sheltered and so early in my learning about this area that when Ferguson happened, it kind of blew me away. Yeah. I was like, wow, I thought that we had dealt, I, I thought we had made so much more, more progress, progress. On, on racism in institutions than we had. Um, and I think that sort of aligns with this comment, right? That, like aspirationally, you know, you put this in place, everything functions beautifully, um, and then you don't need it anymore um, because we have this, this society that's more inclusive, that doesn't have this uh, institutional racism, in, in, you know, embedded. Um, unfortunately, you know, given where we're at now, um, you know, I, I see that it's much more like a pendulum that swings back and forth and back and forth. And the progress is really incremental. Um, and while I'm an optimistic person, um, I think five years from now, <laughs> I think O'Connor is going to be off in that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it would be interesting if she were alive today to, to get her viewpoint on that. But uh, sure unfortunately, we can't do that. So, folks, we're at the last case I'm going to talk about, and then we'll move on to the the case before the Supreme Court now. And and the last case is Fisher v. Texas, and that was a 2016 decision that involved the University of Texas at Austin. And this case is a little bit complex, and you'll understand why, because the UT used a very kind of complex formula um, in its admission. So they used something called the top 10% law in which any student who graduated in the top 10% of their high school class would be granted admission to the university. So that's pretty straightforward. That's not complex. But here's where the complexity comes in. So if an applicant was not in the top 10% of his or her high school class, the university created an academic index. So AI and not artificial intelligence. That was too <laughs> early for artificial intelligence and a personal achievement index, PAI, for each student. So the AI, even though it sounds like artificial intelligence, the AI calculated uh, SAT scores and high school academic performance, and the PAI considered applicants' essays as well as a full file review, which included any leadership that they did, any work experience, their extracurricular activities, community service, and anything else in terms of special characteristics that might give the admissions committee insight into the student's background. And race was included as one of those special characteristics. So the Supreme Court found that the universities of race within this kind of complex formula of AI and PAI was a factor of a factor of a factor, which as one factor in the university's kind of holistic review process was narrow enough to meet the strict scrutiny standard. And, and I think that's kind of interesting, right? It's, it's kind of consistent. It's interesting how they did it, right? They have this academic index, which is 
to me, it seems like the hard data, right? The stats. And then the, the PAI is kind of the soft skills stuff. Exactly. Right? Everything else that makes you an included race. Um, and, and it seems to me that, that that's kind of consistent with where the court was before. It said, like, you know, you can take into account the entire candidate, including their race, um, as part of it, right? You just can't have a quota. Uh, and I think it's interesting, you know, that that was in 2016, right? And I, and I know, you know, I can't remember the exact chronology, but, you know, the composition of the court was changing. Trump was in power. Exactly. A lot of people were looking, it was Texas. <laughs> a lot of people were looking at that decision as a decision that I think was going to change um, affirmative action, um, you know, and, and cut it down. And, and what we ended up getting was, you know, strict, strict scrutiny and kind of aligned with, I think, sort of where, where the court was at, you know, in the prior Michigan cases. Yeah, exactly. I think it made a lot of sense with the Gruder versus Bollinger case with the law school admission policy at the U of M. So the court basically found, like you said, Mike, strict scrutiny was satisfied and that the use of race in the admissions effort was constitutional. And the court found also that there was compelling interest in obtaining educational benefits that flow from a student body having diversity. So so that's a, a brief historical background. And so, Mike, I'm going to let you talk about the current case that's before the court. Yeah. So the current case, as you mentioned earlier, Lisa, it's a consolidation of two cases, um, both brought by the Students for Fair Admissions, the, the SFFA. Um, and we can talk about who that group is. I, I believe that that group was sort of formed to basically get a, get a case before the Supreme Court sort of politically and, and sort of give them a test correct. case. You are correct uh, on that, yes. Right, so it was very sort of strategic. Um, so it's Students for Fair Admissions you know, versus the President and Fellows of Harvard College. Um, that case started way back in 2014. Um, and also the SFFA, same, same organization against uh, University of North Carolina, UNC. Um, so what happened in these cases, and I'll talk about the Harvard one first, um, these also concern the admissions processes for educational institutions. Um, so SFFA sued Harvard College over its admissions process, and their allegation, and, and I think what's interesting about these cases strategically is I think they show kind of a, a strategy on the conservative side Definitely. to kind of to kind of take um, you know, rules and regs that were intended to remedy, um, you know, discrimination like the Civil Rights Act, like affirmative action itself, and kind of turn it on its head to make the opposite argument. Um, so it's very strategic and, and you know, I guess, depending on where you sit, like interesting or nefarious and scary. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, they allege that the admissions process violated um, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, because it discriminates against Asian American applicants in favor of white applicants. Um, so Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, just so we all have it, um, is, is the provision that says that no person in the United States shall on the ground of race, color, or national origin be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination uh, under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Um, so that's, that's the Harvard case. Um, and then the same group sued UNC, um, alleging that their admissions process violated the 14th Amendment by using race as a factor in admissions. Um, and so, again, you know, the, the Civil uh, Rights Act and the 14th Amendment are 
you know, usually you know, the, the folks you see, you know, trumpeting those are folks on the other side of the political aisle um, because those those amendments and those laws came about to remedy discrimination. So um, it's, you know, very strategic and, and, and scary and clever. And, yeah. So so the 14th Amendment, um, you know, which is cited all over the place is the Equal <laughs> Protection Clause. Um, and just so we're all on the same page on, as to what that says. Um, right. That says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law, uh, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws. So that's so 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 using the 14th Amendment and Title Six to argue that any admissions process that takes into account race in looking at the overall applicant those are the theories that are being pressed um the sffa yeah and i think it's really interesting to know there are a couple of things that are interesting um in italics um unc um go tar heels um <laughs> is considered to be the oldest public university in the country i didn't know that um yeah it's pretty interesting yeah. um and i think um and historically this and this one was shocking to me um admitted its first black students in 1951. Isn't that incredible? Um, more than 160 years after its founding and only did so in response to a federal court order. So the fact that UNC um, is the defendant in this case is is really eye-opening. Um, and, you know, as these other schools, you know, both Harvard and USC, UNC um, have admitted and do um, use race as one of many factors in their admissions process, um, but they've argued that their process is totally consistent with, you know, prior Supreme Court precedent, uh, like in, in the Greta case that we discussed um, for race-based admissions. Um, so, so basically, SFFA is is asking that the that the prior, uh, you know, Greta and Bake cases be overruled. Um, as we've gone up to the Supreme Court, the lower courts both found in favor of the schools. So at the lower levels and up, um, UNC and Harvard both won. Um, now um, we have reached the Supreme Court um, and they already had oral argument um, in the late fall. So that's why we're talking about this now, because it could be any time. Um, and and so, uh, so, so I think we, we can talk a little bit about what happened during oral argument, because uh, sometimes it's hard to read the tea leaves, but it's always interesting to see which justices and what direction the court is going. Um, so, so Lisa, could you, I mean, yeah. maybe just tell a little bit about what happened during oral yeah. argument. Back this was fascinating to me because it was a five hour oral argument, which, you know, I don't know what the lo longest oral argument is, but that seems really long for the U.S. Supreme Court. They, you know, normally don't go anywhere near that long. UNC's attorneys went first. Um, they said racial classifications were wrong, that Brown versus the Board of Education struck down racial segregation in public schools and firmly and finally rejected the idea that such classification should be used to allow uh, influence and educational opportunity. So that was an interesting, I think, perspective. But what really what was interesting in the oral argument was some of the comments from the six conservative justices who really leveled a barrage of criticism against the court's precedents um, yeah. that involved considering race. And I mean, some of it was just shocking to me, particularly Justice Clarence Thomas, who at one point said 
he didn't have any clue what diversity meant, which was yeah. so surprising <laughs> to me. He's a black man and he doesn't know what diversity means. I was very perplexed by that statement. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what I think what really came through, uh, you know, if it didn't come through in the framing of the cases, using the Civil Rights Act, using the 14th Amendment, using Brown versus the Board of Education um, to say, hey, you know, you, racial classification of any of any type is wrong um, is, is really it's hard to swallow, yeah. um, you know, that argument. But, you know, what was most surprising about Justice Thomas's comment, I think, to me, was that he spoke at all. Um, he's not <laughs> exactly. A big, he's not a big, he's not a big speaker, yeah. not a big talker during oral arguments. But th- but then to choose to speak and say that I don't have a clue what diversity means. Um, you know, that's that's a very kind of results oriented uh, comment if we take it at face value. And, you know, the other justices, you know, Justice Alito um, asked, how can a court determine whether the benefits of diversity have been achieved? Right. Saying that this is kind of not something or at least indicating that in his view, this isn't something that, that the courts or the law should be in the business. Exactly. Um, and, um, you know, Justice Amy uh, Coney Barrett. Uh, was talking about the the, the Gruder case, um, and we should note, you know, Thomas dissented in Gruder. Yeah, he um, did. And I think I think what's interesting about all this, um, and you know, it's kind of like the biggest fear, right? Nothing has changed. The laws haven't changed. Supreme Court precedent, stare decisis, it's there. But you now just have, you know, because of the prior administration and how many new, and you look at the justices, right? Um, Amy Coney Bryant is now there as part of this conservative majority and the composition of the court has changed. Um, And so now, you know, you have the possibility of overruling something for for really no other reason because, uh, you know, because you can power wise. And so, you know, Justice, um, you know, Coney Barrett um, said that the Grutter case, the Michigan case, said that the use of racial classifications is so dangerous that it must have a logical endpoint. And, you know, I think she's referring to that dicta of, hey, you know, this should sunset at some point. We're not going to need this anymore. And it was interesting that, you know, the focus of her questions was, well, when does it end? When's the sunset? How do you know? Now it's been 50 years since since the Bake case. Um, and, you know, achieving diversity has been difficult. What if it continues to be difficult, you know, for another 25 years? And, you know, she wasn't asking us those questions, right? We're just, you know, IP lawyers with a podcast. But, um, <laughs> you know, if it, if it continues to be difficult for another 25 years, uh, you know, that's unfortunate. And I think it's unfortunate that we haven't made the progress that, that, that we have, you know, that we maybe aspirationally, uh, you know, Justice O'Connor thought that we would make. Um, but, you know, undoing this is going to slow down that progress, you know, even more by leaps and bounds. So just those questions are, are I think, quite scary um, if you're a proponent of affirmative action and believe it's important um, in admissions and job applications. Um, and I know, Lisa, before we started, you were talking about how important it is and, and, and how, you know, what a big shift this might represent. I think this, yeah, I mean, you can read the tea leaves a little bit in here, but it, it definitely seems like they're leaning towards ending affirmative action. And I mean, it, you could kind of sense some of that desperation from the U.S. solicitor who was General Elizabeth Prelogger. She argued on behalf of the Biden administration, and, and she tried desperately in her oral argument to assure the court that there was an endpoint in sight and that society will change eventually and in a way that will allow universities to obtain a diverse student body 
without considering race. Um, and yeah, it's it's so important that we have diverse students, and which will lead to diverse graduates that will lead to diverse employees, um, because study after study has showed that the best products, uh, companies are more productive, they are more successful if they have a heterogeneous set of employees and homogeneous. So um, she argued really hard um, on that point, but the conservative justice, they came back to say, well, you know, maybe universities can assemble diverse student bodies using programs that don't involve race. And so some of the things they pointed out, Mike, was um, using financial aid or some outreach program for low-income or first-generation students. Um, and then that, of course, led to Justice Kavanaugh noting that since Gutiker, that nine states barred the consideration of race in their admissions policy. And he went as far as to say that those examples now show with greater confidence that universities can use race-neutral programs that produce significant numbers of minority students on campus. So I thought that yeah. was a pretty interesting comment. Yeah, I mean, I think the comments of the U.S. solicitor and, you know, the response by the justices that you just noted, I mean, I think it shows that, um, you know, she was on her heels, right, saying Definitely society will change and we're going to get there. And, you know, one day we'll be in a place where we don't need affirmative action and we can get a diverse student body without considering race. But it really all reminds me of this whole I don't see color um, approach exactly. to diversity, equity and inclusion. And I think, um, you know, folks that I've spoken to and things that I've read and um, the way I see it now uh, is that folks who say I don't see color um to me, that's just an unsatisfying and, and wrong approach. Um, the approach should be, I do see color. I acknowledge that there are differences. And it seems like the court is taking this, like, you know, we, we can't look at this thing that's right before us approach. And it, it's really, it aligns in my mind so much with this, I don't see color approach and thinking that that is, what, is what's going to get us diversity. And I think it's just really kind of a backhanded way of, of kind of squelching change. Absolutely. And then Justice Gorge made an interesting comment that universities consider other factors in admissions process, such as whether the applicant is a child of an alumnus, whether the applicant's family had donated money to the university, which seems, you know, here's Justice Kavanaugh saying, well, and, and other conservative justice saying, well, maybe consider financial aid or outreach to low income uh, students. But here Justice Gorge is saying, well, maybe you should consider families who donate money to the university, whether the applicant's a university or has performed some type of a military service. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Justice Gorsuch's uh, comment there yeah. um, that, you know, you can consider like legacy folks or athletes. Like, I, I think all of these questions, and again, I wasn't arguing this, but it, it all says like, you can consider anything you want, right? There are lots of different things except you just can't consider this this factual objective thing right before you, which is race. And it just seems a really ass backwards way of doing it to me. Yeah, I, I think, you know, when we looked at the UT case and then the U of M Michigan um, law school uh, kind of scenario where they were considering a bunch of different factors, you know, that that certainly makes sense. And that seems to be what, you know, some of these other justices are saying, consider these other factors. But why can't you consider race as one of those factors. You're basically taking race out of the list of factors you can consider. So it's yeah, kind of I think, interesting. 
and and I think it's interesting. Like I know that, that you and I are, are are aligned, you know, sort of political and in, in where we're at and how we see these things. And I and I know, you know, I, I do understand the arguments on the other side. I understand what they're saying. And and you know, to make this equal protection type argument, and 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 I, and, and I think the other side sees it more as a zero sum kind of game, Absolutely. right? You know, and, that, and that's, and that's, I think, you know, why the prior Supreme courts have said, well, we're not going to have quotas. It's not going to be like 20 people, you know, who are black are going to get in. Cause that's, cause that's right out of a hundred. Um, yeah. right, right. Cause that's, that's too much like, like a quota that, and that seems unfair. Um, but, you know, I think that the people on the other side of this issue and, and sort of the conservative majority, perhaps, like, you know, they look at this issue and say, um, it's a zero sum game. Some, you know, someone is winning and therefore someone else is losing. And if a black person is gaining admission or getting that job, um, that means that a white person is not getting it. Um, and they're very troubled with that. Um, right. Of course, the flip side is we've had, you know, history, history, you know, before this point, you know, had the odds in the other direction and we're trying to sort of level that playing field. And also that there, there is, um, the zero sum game approach is, is is really kind of false because I think I think that what the prior cases and and I think in fact what the Harvard and UNC admissions policies do is it says like you can look at the whole person and exactly and and diversity uh, you know having someone who had a different background who comes from a different place who has a different experience that is an important criteria so it's it's really not black and white um, you know pun intended pun intended yeah that was a good one Mike. So let's look at what some of the liberal judges had to say. And um, it was interesting. Justice Ken J. Brown Jackson, she recruited herself from the Harvard case because she had recently served on Harvard's Board of Overseers, but she was able to participate in the UNC argument. So interestingly, she described um, two hypothetical applicants. So she said, and this was part of her suggestion of a scenario where universities might not consider race as part of their admission process, but but consider other factors like military service. So these hypothetical applicants were one where a family had attended UNC for generations. So here the applicant would be able to have his family background considered and valued by the institution as part of his consideration of whether or not to admit him. Kind of kind of going back at Justice Gorsuch's comment, I think. And another whose relatives in prior generations couldn't attend UNC because they were black. And this applicant wouldn't be able to have his family background considered because um, his story in so many ways was bound up with race and the race of his ancestors. You know, he he just didn't have the funds to be able to afford it. So kind of interesting, two hypothetical applicants and I think the juxtaposition that she was suggesting. Yeah, it's an interesting point, um, right? If you're talking about equal protection, to talk about the difference in treatment between these two hypothetical applicants uh, under the rules sort of proposed by the other side that really don't get you there. Yeah. You know, that, I think it's also interesting, um, like if you look at what Justice Kagan was talking about, and, 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 you know, she, during the oral argument, stressed that the impact of a ruling in favor as of, of SFFA and against the universities um, and look at the impact it would have not only on university admissions, but just on society more broadly. Um, I think she, she did a good job kind of emphasizing how important um, this education space is, right? She called universities the pipelines to leadership in our society. And I think it's just interesting because when we talk about diversity and inclusion um, in the workplace, you know, we talk about it 
Um, we, we do talk about that pipeline. Absolutely. You know, on the last episode of this podcast, we talked about how few women there are in STEM and tech and, yep. and patent law and how it's important to address it at the earlier level. So I think that pipelines point is really important, right? And that's why these cases um, are so high profile and so impactful. Um, you know, she said, Justice Kagan said, if universities are not racially diverse, um, then, then that will lead to a broad range of other institutions, um, businesses, law firms. Those are not going to be racially diverse either. So I think that was a really good point on impact. Absolutely. And, and that was followed up again, going back to the Solicitor General who you know, noted that the U.S. militaries had some real significant problems with racial tension and strife when its officer corps don't match the diversity of its enlisted members. And she said that it was now the consistent judgment of U.S. senior military leaders that it was absolutely critical to have diverse officer corps, and therefore they really needed to consider race for admission to the service academy. So kind of, you know, buttressing what um, Justice Kagan was saying. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that that we have here. Here we have a case where the conservative side is is drawing on the Fourteenth Amendment and the Civil Rights Act and and Brown versus the Board of Education, and and the and the other side is is saying is drawing on these kind of historical um, institutions that are favored by more more of the right, like the military, and saying like even in the military they realize that it's really important to consider race. Right? It's just interesting how everything seems turned on its head in this case. Yeah. And it, it seemed to have struck a chord. And, you know, Justice Roberts then kind of chimed in and said, well, maybe, you know, because the military universities are different, you know, maybe we don't look at and decide the service academy issue with this case. And the Solicitor General countered saying that diversity at all institutions of higher learning was extremely important because a lot of students that had attend universities end up going into the military and a large number of officers come from universities and they serve as training programs. So she kind of shot down that idea that, you know, kind of uh, separating the two from the court's decision. Yeah. Interesting. So um, a decision is due later this year um, in these cases. Um, you know, personally, I've, I've given up trying to make predictions as to what the Supreme Court is going to do. I, I do I do March Madness. I stick to basketball. Um, I remember, you know, I was on law review at NYU and I don't think I even participated in the Supreme Court cert pool back then. That was just too dorky for me. Um, so so uh, but here I am talking about, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of, uh, of Supreme Court education cases. So I don't know. I don't know where that where that puts me. But, you know, in terms of what's likely um, you know, of course, looking at the way the argument went, looking at the comp composition of the court, um, you know, I am scared that this court is going to overrule its prior precedents um, and strike down affirmative action. Um, you know, I hope that doesn't happen, but uh, it seems like that's what might happen. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit more negative than you. I I I just having listened, I listened to a lot of the oral argument. I didn't listen to it in, in its entirety, but it just seems like given the composition of this court, that affirmative action will be struck down, which is a shame because we'll have another decision if that is in fact what happens that, you know, years of Supreme Court precedent that'll be overturned. And, you know, what I thought was really insightful is I, I read Mike an article by the Legal Defense Fund. Um, mm -hmm. And they um, looked at data that Harvard was re required to release um, as a result of this law school. And um, they had to release um, Harvard, that is, applicant-level data for classes from 2014 to 
2019 for two expert witnesses to analyze. Mm -hmm. And the data that was used and the modeling performed from the class of 2019 showed that if Harvard stopped considering race, the number of Black, Latino, Native, Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students would drop nearly 50%. And wow. Most of those students would be replaced by white students. So, Mike, it's really somewhat disturbing, you know, if affirmative action is overruled by the court, what the impact of that ruling might be. Yeah, and it takes me back to Justice Kagan's statement about impact. I mean, first of all, um, very disturbing, right? Fifty percent. Um, yeah. It's just huge, right? And 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 then the trickle down effect when you think about you know, the businesses and law schools and law firms and, and corporations that say, oh, like we're going to, you know, we recruit students from Harvard or UNC, right? The trickle down effect where it really has a, has a drastically large impact on the diversity and the pipeline for, for those other institutions. Um, I think that's why there's so much um, focus on this case on both sides. Exactly. Um, um, right. Because with, without, you know, at least from our perspective, without the fair shot, that holistic admissions, right? Being able to take into account race as one of many factors, um, without that fair shot enabled by that, um, you have a whole generation or more um, of promising, hardworking, you know, black, Latino, Native American, Asian American, um, and you know, Pacific Islander students, um, you know, would be shut out of selective colleges and universities. Um, and and I think that's uh, the, the impact of that. Like we've talked about, it's it's huge. Yeah, it's it's really huge. So we'll see what happens. We'll get a decision sometime this year. When that'll come remains to be seen. Yeah, and I know. So I know today's episode, um, you know, we took a deep dive into these cases, but I, I think I thought it was really useful to understand the background and understand where this might go um, because um, because of the impact. So I'm glad we had a chance to do this. And I think that's all the time we have for this week. Um, so Lisa and I will catch you next time on the Inclusion Evolution. Thank you for listening to Inclusion Evolution. The views expressed during this podcast are solely those of the hosts and not of their respective law firms. Share your thoughts with us by emailing us at llmuller at casimerjones.com or mkasden at wigan.com. 